So I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message that I'm calling, It Is Finished. As a minister of the gospel of grace, I can tell you with conviction that those words are the wind beneath my wings. I don't know a lot about wings, but I know if you put enough air underneath them, you'll have left. And as I began to come into the finished work message several years ago, that's exactly the way I felt. I felt like there was a wind beneath my wings. I could soar in places that I had never soared. If you've ever watched an eagle, they don't do a lot of flapping of their wings. They're a big bird and it takes a lot of energy, but they find that current and they just let the wind do the work. And you know what? That's what grace is all about, is letting the Spirit of God do the work instead of us doing all the work. And as that fresh wind comes underneath of us and lifts us, that's exactly what it does. The heart and soul of this ministry is not just to get people to heaven, although we do want to see people go to heaven, believe me. But the deepest passion of Triumphant Grace Ministries is to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Probably the easiest way to get to know someone is to listen to them. You can't get to know somebody if you don't listen to them or if you do all the talking. Listen to them and you'll get to know them. But when I say listen to them, I'm not talking about listening with your ears. I'm talking about listening with your heart. Listen with your heart. Have you ever noticed that the more voices that you have speaking at the same time, the more challenging it becomes to distinguish the gentle voice of the Holy Spirit? You see, fear and pain and lack and shame and loneliness and condemnation, they all have voices. And sometimes those voices are louder than they were before. And those voices have a way of competing with the voice of assurance and freedom and love and acceptance and forgiveness and grace and especially the voice of truth. The songwriter wrote it perfectly through the lyrics when he says, but the voice of truth tells me a different story. And the voice of truth says, do not be afraid. And the voice of truth says, this is for my glory. Out of all the voices calling out to me, I will choose and listen and believe the voice of truth. So then, what should be our response when we are caught in the battle rounds of these competing voices? Do we turn up the voice of truth? You think if you turn something up that you'll be able to hear it better. It's not about amplifying the voice of truth. It's about allowing truth to silence the voice of untruth. As surely as light always displaces and triumphs over darkness, so it is with truth. Truth always displaces and wins the battle round over religion. So, I'm going to ask you this question. How do we allow the voice of truth to whisper in our hearts? Now listen, this is so simple. If you would have paid to get in here today, you'd probably ask for your money back, but this, it's so simple. Let me ask the question again. How do we allow the voice of truth to whisper into our hearts? 
We begin, I believe, by meditating upon Jesus' last words from the cross when he said, it is finished. I believe that's where it begins. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, with my sacrifice, with my sinless life, and with my precious blood, I have delivered you from an empty way of life. In Jesus' dying breath, he slipped the it is finished ring of promise over our hearts. Now let me ask you a question. Did Jesus finish the work? Absolutely. Yes, of course he finished the work. He said, it is finished. And where were you and I when Jesus finished the work? Well, we were in Christ. Therefore, his finished work became our finished work. Friends, we were in Christ when he died. We find this truth in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 7. It says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united, or literally that means if we've been married, for if we have been united with him in a death like his we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And what is that resurrection like? It's full of glory and it's full of power. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. When the Bible says that Anyone that has died has been set free from sin. That word free is the Greek word dekaiao. It literally means to be declared innocent. It means to be righteous. So God is saying because we've died in Christ, we have been declared innocent or we have been set as righteous. We haven't just been taken out of jail. You know, you can take someone out of jail and they can still walk around guilty. They can still walk around committing crimes. They can still feel condemned. I heard the story one time of someone that got out of jail, been in there for a lot of years. It was a lady and she called him up and said, can you take me back? I don't know how to live out here. And they said, no, that's just not the way it works. We don't take people back. And so she committed a crime just so she could go back to jail. But God did more than just take us out of jail or put us in a witness protection program. He gave us an identity swap. He took our identity and he gave us Jesus' identity. The Alcatraz that once held us in bondage has closed its doors. Now there's a term called recidivism. Recidivism refers to people that are incarcerated and maybe they spend years in jail and then they get out of jail and then they commit the crime again and they get put back in jail. That is called recidivism. And the rate for recidivism in this country is skyrocketing. 70 to 80% of criminals that are released from prison will eventually make their way back in there because they've not had a heart change. They've not had an inner transformation that leads to an outward change. 
But I've come by today to tell you the recidivism for people that are born-again believers of ever being able to return back to that state of sinnerhood is zero. There is no going back. He made a way so that we couldn't go back. Jesus said, I am the door. And that door swings one way, swings in. And there's no way for anything to get in there and mess with you. He said, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, the reason this messes with our mind is because we go, man, am I really set free? Because I continue to sin sometimes in word and thought and deed. I don't try to make it a lifestyle. I don't try to make it a practice. But am I really set free? Yes, you are set free in your spirit. The part that Jesus lives in, the part the Holy Spirit lives in, the part that we're really like God in. Doesn't mean we're always like God in everything we think and everything we do and everything we say. Friends, if Jesus, the darling of heaven, the one we just sang about, if he rose from his rainbow encircled throne in heaven and he exchanged his jewel studded throne for a criminal's cross, then I can trust that he is going to give me, he is going to impart unto me an outrageous gift. What kind of gift would the precious blood of Jesus purchase for us? What kind of gift would he buy for us? What would it look like? All the majesty of heaven and he chose an old rugged cross. We begin to see this gift unfold in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. Look at those words. From the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. His blood purchased us out of the empty way of life, the Bible says, handed down to us by our ancestors. When you think of something that's empty, what it literally means is it's uninhabited. Nothing lives there. An empty home is an uninhabited home. And God bought us out of a system where he couldn't live on the inside. It was uninhabited. It was an empty way of life. And it was handed down to us from our ancestors. What was that? It was the Mosaic law. It was the sacrificial system that had to be repeated again and again. But God, I want you to take those two words, lock them up in your heart. But God, the Bible says, he redeemed us with the blood of his own son, a currency of inexhaustible worth. The next time you go to estimate your value in the Father's eyes, I want you to consider two things. I want you to consider the cross, and I want you to consider the words, it is finished. When you are trying to put a label of how valuable you might be to God, I want you to consider the cross. And I want you to consider, it is finished. And I'll tell you what, your value, your estimation will change. I don't mean in an arrogant way, but I mean in a way that's in agreement with the way God really sees you and the way God feels about you. In Romans chapter 6, in verse 6 and 7, again, it says the same things. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now let me address this for a moment, and I think you'll get set free here a little bit. In Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, we find these words. 
For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Who sinned? Everybody has sinned. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, a lot of ministers don't quote that part of the verse. They just go, well, the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And they don't give you any hope with that. They're like, wait a minute, that's bad news. But it says right there, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now here's the part I want you to see. Look at the word there, for all have sinned. Sinned. I don't like that word, but you know what? I'm no longer afraid of that word. That word is not a boogeyman to me anymore. It used to be a boogeyman to me. I'd be like, oh, sin. No, let's not talk about sin. Everybody's got it, you know. I mean, no, let's not talk about it. That word doesn't bother me. Why? Because I'm dead to sin. The Bible just told me I was dead to sin. That word sinned right there comes from the Greek word hamartano. Hamartano is a verb, and a verb speaks of the action, or it speaks of an act or the performance of sin. So when Romans 3.23 said, for all have sinned, it literally is saying we've all committed acts. We've all performed sinful, is what it's saying. Now, we know that sin carries a consequence. It has a payment associated with it. And when we used to lead people to Christ, we would say, well, the Bible says all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Now, now that you know that you're in that all group, let me show you what's next. We used to call it the Romans road, Romans 6 verses 22 and 23. Now, being made free from sin. Oh, hey, hold on. Wait a second now. Did he just say being made free from sin? Who is that? Who in the world is he talking about? Oh, he's not talking about Jesus here. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about us as believers. Now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages, or another way to say it, for the payment of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So now in this scripture here, you see the word in verse 22, sin, and in verse 23, sin. Remember, 3.23, it said, for all have sinned, and now it's mentioning it again. But here's the good news. These two words here come from a different Greek word. It's not hamartano, it is the Greek word hamartia. Hamartia is a noun, and it doesn't speak of the performance of sin, it speaks of the presence of sin. So it literally is saying we have been made free from the presence or the indwelling presence of sin in our spirits, even though we continue to perform acts of sin. So let me ask you a question. Does it stand to reason that if we are free from the presence of sin, then we are also free from the penalty of sin? It does, because what he's saying there, he's saying, listen, you have been made free from the presence of sin dwelling inside of you dwelling in your spirit, even though you may blow it from time to time, even though your performance may not be spot on, the presence of sin no longer lives in your spirit. Why? Because you've had an identity swap. You've had a DNA swap. A talking bird can perform what we would call acts of sinful language. You could teach a bird to say just about anything. But does that mean that the presence of sin is dwelling in the bird? <laughs> no! It doesn't mean that. Of course not. 
So it is with believers. We have been given a new and perfect nature, even though our performance is not always perfect. The best way to stop sinning is not through a list of do's and don'ts. If you go down this road, I'm going to tell you, you're going to sin all the more. It's by reminding ourselves that grace has won the battle round over sin. Sin has been defeated, and you and I are dead to sin, but alive to God, the Bible says, in Christ Jesus. The recidivism rate for the believer's nature to return to sinner is absolutely zero. You see no examples whatsoever in the Bible, in the New Testament, under the New Covenant. There are no examples. I love what Jesus said to the Father. He said, I've not even lost one of those that you gave me. Now, friends, I've lost a lot of things in life. You give me a hundred of anything, and I guarantee, unless I put it in a vault, I'll lose one somewhere along the line. But Jesus said, listen, out of all the ones you've given me, I've not lost even one. So, in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we find these words. It says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. What does the grace of God do? It teaches us to say no. No to what? To worldly passions, ungodliness, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, there it is, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. Not eager to refrain from what is bad, but eager to do what is good. It's how you look at things. Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 11. The Bible says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him, the death he died, he died to sin. Look at those three words, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. I love these words. It says in the same way. In what way? In the way he just described Jesus. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friends, that's worth shouting about right there. We were crucified with Christ. We were buried with Christ. We were raised with, from the dead with Christ. And we are no longer a slave to sin because now we are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Please let me remind you what the scriptures plainly told us, that anyone who has died in Christ has been set free from sin. Now, one of the greatest stumbling blocks we face as believers is rightly dividing what we call the word of truth, or in this case, I'm going to say it as the voice of truth. The Bible is not only talking about dividing truth from that which is false, that's easy to do, but also dividing truth from truth. That's called context, where you begin to divide truth even from truth. You see, there is a present truth, and there is a past truth. In other words, how can that be? Because it was true at one time. Without the understanding of how to separate the Old Covenant from the New Covenant, we end up with what we call a hybrid or a mixture, if you will, understanding of the gospel, and it gives the defeated adversary his voice back. 
Jesus had much to say about this through his ministry, and no one could have said it better. But what would Jesus's last words from the cross be as his life was ebbing away? They were the words, it is finished. Jesus didn't die babbling like a crazy man, and he didn't die in the middle of a sentence. Jesus died having declared the words that he wanted to say from the beginning of time, Daddy, it is finished. So many people have died right in the middle of what they were trying to say, and they just couldn't get it out, but Jesus got it out. Oh, he got it out, and he said those powerful words that give us lift. He said, it is finished. It is finished were the last words Jesus cried just seconds before his final exhale from the cross. I've thought about this, and I recently thought about it again. I wonder, I just wonder if the angels themselves had to look away as the darling of heaven hung silent and motionless in crucifixion. The word finish comes from the Greek word teleo. And when Jesus cried from the cross, he didn't say really it is finished. He cried one word. He said teleo, which is finished. What's important about teleo is it's a verb. This verb is used in what is called, listen to me carefully now, the perfect tense. Now, why is that important to us? Why is it important for us to know that? Because the perfect tense indicates a past action, something that happened in the past, which continues in the present. In other words, it's an action that has been finished and it is still finished. Let me give you an example. I am married to Valerie Testerman. This speaks of a past action that continues into the present. I don't marry Valerie every day, yet every day I'm married to Valerie. You see how that works? Now I want you to carry that construct, if you will, over regarding our sins. Our sins were taken away by grace through faith in Jesus' finished work. I'm not forgiven day by day as I repent, and I'm not forgiven lamb by lamb through annual sacrifices. I have been forgiven and cleansed once for all, just the way Jesus said it happened, a past action that continues into the present. In other words, it has been finished, and it still is finished. We find the words, it is finished, in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 30. It says, when Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said... It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You say, who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans? No, when the Romans. Was it the Jews? No, when the Jews. Was it Pilate? When Pilate? Was it Herod? When Pilate? Listen, Jesus said in John 10, verse 18, he says, no one can take my life from me. He said, I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to, and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. Let's open the door for just a moment, and let's look in on that crucifixion. In Mark chapter 15, verses 25 through 39, we see these words. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. 
Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. You can hear the laughter and the scorn and the mockery. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pointing everybody at the base of the cross back to Psalm 22, fulfilling that prophecy. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Look at those words. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Well, he got some of that right, part of that right, maybe most of that right, but he didn't have the hope that Jesus was going to come out of a grave or he wouldn't have just said he was. <laughs> he would have said he is. Surely, he said, this man was the Son of God. In death, Jesus brought about a new and living way for us to draw near to him. I want you to take that picture of that crucifixion and carry that over into Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, and watch the story. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, not the empty way of life that was handed down to us by our ancestors. He says, But by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain. Look at those words. That is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Or another way to say it, with full assurance that comes from knowing it is finished. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We learned through the scriptures that we just read that the crucifixion began at 9 o'clock in the morning. We also learned that from noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon, darkness was upon the land. Jesus had endured the cross for six hours. Six is the number for man because man was made on the sixth day of creation. Man is precisely what his cross was all about. The sacrificial provision had been made to redeem and to reconcile man back to the innocence that he had on the sixth 
day of creation and to introduce mankind to the unconditional covenant of perpetual acceptance and love and forgiveness through the curtain that is his body. The Bible tells us that Jesus received the vinegar just before his final cry, it is finished. That means the sour taste was still in his mouth as he bowed his head and bequeathed his spirit. The sour vinegar is just simply a metaphor that symbolized the end of the old covenant or the old sacrificial system, the old sour system. We see in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, these words. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect for those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would have not stopped being offered. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. It's the way God set it up, but he said, listen, that is not what fulfills me. It's not what fulfills me. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He set aside the first covenant to establish the second covenant. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But then he says, but when this priest, who's he talking about? He's talking about Christ. He's saying, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And of course, when we see that picture, it signifies a finished work. He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, when I used to read this, I would go, hmm, it's saying for those who are being made holy, it sounds like there's this work in progress because it doesn't sound like we're exactly there yet. We're still being made holy. No, friends, we're holy in God's eyes. You say, how do you know that? Well, it just said, and by that will, by that will of the Lord, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is my covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless deeds or their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. I love those words. Oh, let me say those again. Their sins and lawless acts, 
I will remember no more. Why not? Because he has separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. He has cast them into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be brought up again. Romans 6, verse 6 and 7 again. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. See, people don't stop to think about that sometimes. We were crucified with him. We were crucified in him, the Bible says, so that the body, so what body? Not his body. Our body, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. That means we are innocent in the Father's eyes. Again, that word translates as innocent. Now, let me give you a word picture to help you see how free we really are. This is the way the Lord spoke it to me the other night. Imagine you are the parent of identical twins. And one of your twins has been extremely disobedient. Let me ask you a question. Would it be unjust to punish the innocent twin also? I mean, come on, we don't need to think about that. That's just wrong, isn't it? I mean, you got Bobby, who's acting crazy, and you got Johnny, who's a perfect little angel, but yet Bobby's done wrong, and you're going to punish Johnny too. We know that's wrong. Or would we punish Johnny when Bobby did something wrong? No, we know that's wrong too, right? Absolutely. Well, here's the deal. We were made in the image and likeness of Christ. The Bible tells us that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Listen to me carefully. We were the guilty twin. We were made in his image, but we were the guilty twin. Except Jesus said, Daddy, I know my twin is guilty, but Daddy, punish me. Oh, I'm innocent, Daddy. Punish me. And so he did. Now, if all of Daddy's wrath had been poured out on the innocent Lamb of God, then it would be unjust for the Father to punish us also. Do you see that? Do you, do you get that in your heart? The last time I had to correct one of my sons when he was growing, he was about 11 or 12 years of age. I mean, my kids were really pretty good when they were growing up. But he had lied to his mom about something. We found out about it. I was never unreasonable with my kids when I had to lovingly correct them. But I did have to correct them. The Bible says we are to correct our children. And uh, he always hated getting corrected. And I cornered him on it one day. I said, son, you and I are going to sit down at the table. And daddy's going to talk to you about this lying to your mother thing. And it grew very silent in that room. And I had my Bible. This was many years ago. I had my Bible open and I started taking him through the scriptures about lying and being disrespectful and dishonoring your parents. I started taking him through the scriptures. And finally, I got to the point and I said, son, it's time for daddy to correct you now. And I pulled my belt off of me. Listen, I know this sounds worse than it is. It's not like I was unmerciful. But I took it off and I held it. I said, now, son, I want you to come to your daddy. And when he came to his daddy, I took the belt and I put it in his hand. And I bent over a chair and I said, now, I want you to give your daddy a whipping. And I heard him instantly say, no, I, with tears, I heard him say, no, Daddy, I, I can't whip you. 
I said, son, I'm commanding you to whip your daddy. He said, no, daddy, I can't whip you. And he began to cry. I could tell it administered to them. That's just the way the Holy Spirit was moving upon me. I took the belt away from him and I dropped it on the floor and I put my arms around him. I said, son, that is always the way it's been when I've had to correct you over the years. I've never, ever wanted to do this. But imagine for a moment that he would have corrected his father. Imagine he would have. Imagine he would have listened to my voice and he would have did exactly what his daddy said to do. Now imagine when he was done, I looked at him and I said, now son, it's your turn. That wouldn't make sense. Why wouldn't that make sense? Because I've already taken the punishment for the crime. That wouldn't make no sense at all. In fact, I wouldn't even tell you the story if that's the case. That's what Jesus did. He took our punishment so that the Father would not have to correct us like that. It was all poured out on Christ. Do you see that picture in your heart? I was the guilty twin. I was the one deserving of the whipping. I was the one that should have went to the whipping post. I was the one that should have been nailed to the cross. I was the one that should have been forsaken. I was the one that should have cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it wasn't me. It was Christ. And that payment was absolutely sufficient. You say, can you show me in the Bible where the Father punished the innocent Lamb of God in the place of guilty man? I sure can. First of all, it's all over the place. But let me take you to some scriptures. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 through 6. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as we did as hid our face from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs. Whose griefs? It wasn't his griefs, it was our griefs. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He had no transgressions. He was the innocent and is the innocent Lamb of God. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. I know we want to take this verse and we want to go. We want to apply that just to healings in the physical realm. But listen, in this scripture, the context of this scripture, it's not talking about just healing in the body, although we believe in healing in the body. He's talking about healing in the spirit. He's talking about healing in the soul. He's dealing with sin. He's dealing with transgressions. He's dealing with iniquities. He's not dealing with broken bones here. He's not dealing with the flu and the cold. He's dealing with the sinful nature of man. And he says, surely he hath borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The innocent Lamb of God 
the darling of heaven, was stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, and bruised. I love him so much when I think about that, that he, as the innocent twin, took what should have been mine. I love him. And I want to say thank you to Jesus. And I want to open the curtain for him. And I want to introduce him to the entire world. But it turns out the curtain, that is his body, was already open, open so that the guilty twin could escape the empty way of life handed down to him by his ancestors. My closing scriptures are found in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. And then he uses some interesting language. He says, watch out. Here's the Apostle Paul saying, watch out for those dogs. Dogs? Those evildoers. Oh, evildoers? Those mutilators of the flesh. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Judaizers. He's talking about people that will creep back in and tell you that the gospel of grace can't be that good. That's what he's calling dogs. That's what he's calling evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. He's saying, watch out for those people. They are contrary to the gospel of grace, the only and one true gospel. For it is we who are the circumcision we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, oh, look at that, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. You know, I don't put any confidence in my flesh. I think there are probably times where it's there, and I don't even realize I'm putting confidence in my flesh, but my confidence is in Christ. My confidence is in Christ and His finished work. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law. He said, man, he said, when you looked at the law, he said, man, I, I consider myself faultless. Listen, I want to tell you something. The word faultless only is assigned to one group of people, and that is believers in Christ. The Bible calls us faultless. The Bible says we are faultless in His eyes. We are flawless in the eyes of God. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth. Look at these words. Of knowing Christ, isn't that what I said when I opened the message? I said our greatest inspiration, our greatest ambition in life is not just to get people to heaven, it is to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And then he says, I consider them garbage. Some versions, I consider them trash. I consider them dung. I consider them waste that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through the faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes by God on the basis of of faith. Look at that. The righteousness that comes by God, through God, on the basis of faith. Faith in what? Faith in His finished work. 
faith in Christ. And then he says, I want to know Christ. Now, if there's anybody that knew Christ, it had to be the Apostle Paul. Come on. He spent time with Christ. Christ taught him. He said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. You know, I have found since the gospel of grace has been quickened in my heart, I have found a deeper love for the Lord, a deeper love for the Word. I have this sensation, I want to know Him more. I want to see it more. I want to know Christ, and I want to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. He says, not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And that his final thoughts were these. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me in heavenward in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul said that we are to forget what is behind us. I want to tell you something. If you'll just quit looking behind you and fix your eyes on Christ, you'll do yourself one of the greatest favors you can do. See, too often in life, we're always looking behind us. The Apostle Paul says, I forget what's behind me. I can't remember if it happened yesterday. I have forgotten what's behind me. Why? Because his eyes were fixated on Christ. His eyes were fixated on the finished work of the cross. He realized it worked. I don't need plan B. It worked. It is finished. What's finished? The Mosaic law, which contained those empty, uninhabited manner and ways of living. There was no power in the law to know Christ. There was no power in the law to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. The words, it is finished, are not found in the old covenant because the work was never finished. Oh, but they are found in our new covenant because the work is finished. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the scriptures are these. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was and is and will forever be a finished work. It is a past action which continues into the present. The Father has thoroughly punished the innocent Lamb of God, satisfying the demand of His wrath. You and I, as the guilty twin, are set free from the penalty of death. Therefore, the next time the voice of fear or the voice of pain or the voice of lack or the voice of condemnation or the voice of shame or the voice of loneliness, the next time they want to pick a fight with us, our response is not to fight. Our response is not to flight. Our response is, it is finished in Jesus' name. Amen. Daddy, I want to thank you for this word. These three little words, it is finished. And we have overlooked them. We have walked around those words for so many years in our lives, Daddy. I believe that is the beginning of understanding what treasure lies in this earthen vessel, is understanding that you have finished the work. Oh, thank you, Father. The innocent Lamb of God stepped in 
for the guilty twin, the one that was made in your likeness and your image, and said, punish me, Father. Don't punish them. Put all their transgressions, all their sins, all their sorrows, all their guilt, all their iniquities, put them on me, Daddy. I will bear them on the cross so they bear them no more. And Daddy, I thank you that I have the confidence if I bear them on the cross, they will never have to bear their sin for themselves because they are dead to sin. In Jesus' name, amen.